It's time now for the Lamb Macrolane Legal Show. Each show, heard every other Thursday at 1230, will feature different lawyers and their guests from the law firm of Lamb Macrolane. Hello, everybody. Dan Bush and Steve Jarman coming to you. We're, we are in the Lamb Macrolane, we'll call it our studios, which is our offices here on 24 or at 24 East Market Street in Westchester. Um, Steve and I are criminal defense attorneys at Lamb Macerlane, and obviously today we are going to be talking about things that are occurring in the criminal law. And Steve, we've been we've been gone for a little while. We haven't done one of these in a little while, but I think we picked a pretty good time to come back. Absolutely. Yeah. This today, as we are doing this live, um, but this will also go on a podcast as well. Today is April twenty second. Thursday, April 22nd, two days ago, Tuesday, April 20th, the Derek Chauvin verdict was announced. And unless you unless you've kind of been plopped down onto this earth today or Tuesday, then you know that Derek Chauvin is the uh, Minneapolis city police officer who uh, was involved in the death of George Floyd. And that was, I think, Memorial Day of last year, so Memorial Day weekend of 2020. Um, And the case itself has such massive societal implications. Obviously, there's uh, Mr. Floyd was African-American, Mr. Chauvin uh, was Caucasian, and that in and of itself causes a massive societal issue uh, with obvious implications for race relations, for um, police community relations, for confidence in the police, whether you're white or whether you're black, um, use of force within the policing community, just massive societal implications. But Steve, what I'd like to do today um, you certainly can't ignore those societal implications, but with such a prominent trial, what I'd like to do is focus on it from a legal perspective, from a lawyer perspective. Have two lawyers sit back and say, hey, this is how you try a case. Use our experience and talk about not so much whether these guys that did the trial did a good job or a bad job, but really how they came to do what they presented to that jury. Because it's a hell of a lot of work that goes into a trial, and people don't see that. They just see the end result. Um, but there are a million little decisions that go into that planning process that you decide, I do want to call this witness. I don't want to call this witness. I'm not going to ask him about this. I am going to ask about that. Those are the things that we kind of want to talk about today and then really, I guess, discuss at least at the a little bit more than a superficial level, but uh, talk about the ins and outs of the trial and how you you ended up seeing what resulted into the verdict on Tuesday. Stevie, how you been? I've been good. I've been looking forward to, to doing the show. Obviously, um, you know, I, I, I think about from the audience perspective, uh, the number one legal topic that's been in the news for the last two or three weeks, and then I think it's fair to say dominated the the, the legal landscape for the last year um, has been this case. So, I, you know, I think it's a good time to talk about it, talk about our experience and how it relates to what we just witnessed. I'm sure the audience, um, 
you know, could appreciate perspective from, you know, they may watch TV and, you know, see legal commentators speak, but I think to hear two local guys, um, you know, kind of analyze it and give their perspective uh, would be something that they would appreciate. So we've discussed this before, and for the audience, if if this is the first time you're hearing it, Steve and I have a very similar but also a very unique background, I think, at least within our legal profession. Um, similar that we've both done the same things, but unique amongst other criminal defense attorneys, and that is that we both spent time, a significant amount of time, uh, as prosecutors uh, on one side of the law, I guess, and that was done in the Chester County DA's office here in Westchester, and now for the last, in my case, 20 years, Steve, how long have you been a defense attorney? I put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> I think thirteen. I think thirteen years now. So for the first part of our careers, we both cut our teeth as prosecutors, and that's a great way to put it because it is a great way to start a career and learn how the system works. Um, and then we're I, we're not alone in this. We you take your. Uh, talents and the things that you've learned and hopefully go on to the other side, maybe even make a little bit more money. Um, sometimes there's realities in those decisions, but the bottom line is we both know it, I think, from both sides of the equation. Um, so that gives us a little bit of a unique perspective coming into the show today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at it from both sides. I'm going to put on my prosecutor's hat from the old days and see if it still fits. I have less hair than I did then, so it should it should be a little bit big probably on my head, but uh, Steve's going to keep his defense attorney hat on, and that's how we're going to approach this thing. Steve, I'm going to put you on the spot again. In your time as both a prosecutor and a defense attorney, how many trials do you think you've had? Total guess. Jury trials? Either. I think, I think I'm over 30 jury trials, um, and... Probably, you know, if you're counting bench trials total, probably getting close to 50. So for the audience, there's two types of trials you can have, and it depends on who the fact finder is going to be, who is the person that's going to say guilty or not guilty. Um, and in Pennsylvania, you always have the ability to do either. You have the ability to go in front of a judge and let the judge be the one who says guilty or not guilty. Or you can go in front of an actual jury, a jury of 12 of your peers. And in, uh, in Pennsylvania, it's two alternates as well, but that's, that's changeable at times. The 12 people is not unless it's by agreement, but I digress a little bit. So um, when Steve's talking about bench trials versus jury trials, they're the same type of trials. So in, sometime in the, in the law world, we look at them differently, but I promise you clients do not. To a client, it's, am I guilty or not guilty at the end of the trial? So that's why I include both. Um, so what'd you say, in the 80s, you think? Something like nah, that? I would, say, I would probably say 50 total, somewhere okay. around 50. Okay. And I was, as a, as a DA, I was incredibly fortunate because I wanted that kind of experience. And I had a judge who was fantastic and wanted to try as many cases as he possibly could. So I got some phenomenal experience there. And since I've left that office, um, 
I've gained a lot more experience, and we both had some very serious cases. So I think it gives us um, a basis of knowledge in in presenting what we're going to talk about today. And you know that starts with in the Chauvin case. What I'd like to talk about is from a general perspective. First of all, how do you prepare a case as a let's say as a prosecutor? What are the type of things that I consider when I'm, I know that it, at one time, at one point in this case, I'm going to be in front of a judge or a jury, and what are the things that I consider before I get into, before I get into court? <clears throat> and quite frankly, those things start at the time an incident occurs and shortly thereafter. And what I'm talking about is there's a between police and attorneys, there has to be a mindset, even at the origin, the at the scene of the crime, for lack of a better word, of we need to preserve evidence, we need to talk to witnesses, we need to do all these things as soon as we possibly can before outside influences occur, before people start forgetting. You do it while the shock value is still there. What did you see? Tell me about it. And you want to preserve things as well. And in Chauvin, the massive thing that they were preserving was what, Steve? Oh, the 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 video. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot like this. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, video. That's the, yeah, the video eyewitnesses at the scene. You know, you and I talked the other day about uh, that's probably the most impactful video. Uh, you know, in history. I mean, I don't think it's a stress to say it. I mean, it, given the significant cultural impact that it had. Yeah, the video for sure and the witnesses at the scene. Yeah, I, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, this case was entirely won on video because there are these type of situations that occur way too often in the country that nowadays... It's not done in a vacuum. It's not done in a back alley where nobody sees it. Everybody has video. There's one one way, shape, or form. Most things are going to be caught on video. And I've talked to juries after trials, and they want to see video as well. And if they don't see video, they start questioning why. Now, granted, certain things obviously aren't going to happen on video. Um, and that's where you have to develop testimony from other sources. Uh, but juries like video and jurors like things that hard facts, where it's not people's opinions, where it's not one person saying one thing and the other people, the other person saying something else. And they kind of have to judge who's being to- totally truthful. I heard it said the other day that there's, there's three sides to every story. There's my side, there's your side, and then there's the actual truth. And that's what juries too often used to be stuck with. Okay, let's let us decide. And then there's a certain part of guesswork. Video, there is no guesswork. And between police having body cameras or cameras in their car or nowadays there's pole cameras up in certain parts of certain towns. There's traffic cameras that are uh, on the highways. Uh, and, Steve, one of the big things I'm seeing now is doorbell cameras. Yeah, yeah. Ring doorbell. Police, what is it? Ring? 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Police will go and canvas a neighborhood and they'll go up to each of the individual houses and say, look, I see that you have a ring uh, camera. Do you mind if we look at your ring camera because we think something happened outside? And it's amazing. And it's just going to get more, more and more and more. It's I saw something the other day, and you and I haven't talked about this, but I was out at, out, uh, at a, an establishment last evening, and I'm having dinner, and a police officer walks in, and three young, young guys eventually follow the police officer outside, meaning the police officer was asking them questions. And one of the guys, these guys are probably 22, 23 years old, as he's walking out of this restaurant, he's holding up his video camera. And videotaping the police officer as he's walking out. And I know we laugh, but that's what is going on out there nowadays. And thank God in the Chauvin case, that young lady had the wherewithal and the foresight to do exactly that. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, the, 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 that young lady may have, I mean, she may have just done more to help bring that verdict, but she may have changed culture moving forward, just, just that one video. True. What... What kind of gets to me sometimes is when instead of, and I'm not talking about in Chauvin, but instead of helping somebody out, they sit there and videotape the thing anyway. And you sit there and go, put down the damn phone and start, <laughs> you know, help the person out. But, look, I get it. Um, okay. So getting back to kind of where we are with this thing, as a prosecutor with Derek Chauvin case, what I do is, I gather information from the very beginning and the things that they had going for them. Number one, they had a fantastic video. It was clear. It had sound and it showed the horrors that were occurring at the time. And it, it left no doubt in anybody's mind as to the facts that occurred there. So that kind of uh, you as a defense attorney that had to tie your hands at some point, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I, you know, putting just thinking it as a, I was uh, in the position to defend. As uh, soon as I see that video, um, you know, and 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 the and, and, um, the clients hired me to defend, um, I'm concerned, and I probably, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty straightforward person with my clients, and I tell them, you know, what they need to know, and I would have said, this is going to be tough. This is going to be a tough battle. Um, before it turned into movements that were all around the world, just looking at the video by itself, I would have been concerned. Um, you know, you, you hit on it earlier. Uh, some of the cases that I have not been successful in trial usually have come down to there's either video or audio, and it's really hard to overcome something that witness, uh, the jury hears. You almost have to go in saying, oh, ignore what you heard. That's not what you heard is not what you heard. What you saw, you did not see. And, you know, it's a very hard thing to do. Like, juries really rely on, okay, I, I can't trust this person. I can't trust that person. I, I can trust my own ears. I can trust my own eyes. And so, you know, going in, this is my mission going in, is I have to somehow convince this jury that what they, what, what everyone thinks they saw did not really occur. Um, so I'm concerned. And I, you know, we talked about this earlier. Little known fact is, you know, it was reported this in you know recently that uh, his lawyers were so concerned that they actually had struck a plea deal with the prosecution for third degree murder, um, contingent on the U.S. government not filing civil rights charges. And so the reporting was that 
Chauvin's attorneys were on board, prosecutions on board. The only thing holding it up was the U.S. government at the time saying, look, it's too early for us to make that decision. Uh, we can't be a part of that. And so the deal fell through. But that showed the significance of how concerned his attorneys were about the video because, you know, I mentioned this earlier to you today, that until Tuesday, no uh, Caucasian police officer had ever been convicted of the charge for murder uh, for a death of a, uh, of a black person in the course of their duty. None. So <laughs> you would think the odds are in your favor going to trial in that type of situation. But the fact that, that in, only one in month... In Minnesota, Steve? Yeah, in Minnesota. And so only one... Yeah, let me clarify. No, no person... There have been no conviction in Minnesota in that state. So the odds are in your favor as a police officer if you were going to go to trial in that situation. So the fact that one month... You're already ready to plead not to manslaughter, not to something, but to a murder charge. That That's astonishing. So it's, it's, it's astonishing. But then when you see the video, the nine-minute video, you understand why. You understand that visceral reaction that people had when they watched it. you got to overcome that. And so it's not a surprise when you think it from that standpoint that, hey, we got to do something so you're not getting what you ended up getting, which second-degree murder, or potentially first. And that's... That's exactly what the prosecution based their case on, and meaning, you know, you, as, a, as an attorney, you come up with a theme. And I don't mean to say that like a fictitious theme, but you want the jury to keep their eye on the ball on a particular part of a case. Uh, and that you want that theme to resonate from your opening statement throughout the presentation of the evidence and then really slam it home in the closing. And their consistent theme was this case is exactly what you saw on that video. It's exactly what you had in your gut when you saw it the first time. That's what this case is all about. And that's, that's attributable to, to nothing but the video. And if you didn't have that video, I'm not sure that we would have ended up with the result that we did on Tuesday. Well, well this, just to interrupt real quick. When you, the, the initial report after that incident was that they tried to arrest Mr. Floyd and uh, there was a cardiac event shortly after, thereafter. And, it, and that's it. They didn't, they didn't, the report, the official report didn't say anything about kneeling on the neck or anything like that. So that was absent, um, you know, from that report. So I, I think you're 100% right. But for the video, it would have been uh, eyewitness people on the street saying this is what happened, but without that video, seeing it yourself, who knows? So that even goes to what, so when you break it down, what the prosecution really had in this case, and I look at it as basically four main good parts and a couple of bad parts, and the four good parts are strong, this is making my case strong, is you have a, you have a video, obviously. You also have witnesses there. You have a ton of people who were standing there watching this whole thing. And it's not just black versus white. There are white people who are watching as well and saying the same type things. Like, you have to get off this guy. You put him in the car. Let him go. Or not let him go, but put him in the car. You're done here, man. Uh, and Chauvin basically at one point pulled out his mace to mace somebody. Um, and I think that gentleman was actually like a firefighter or an EMT who had advanced towards him, and Chauvin went to unhook his mace, 
so that he could potentially use it on that person. So you have video, you have witnesses, and then you have a ton of medical evidence as well. And to, in their favor, that video shows a very unlikable, unsympathetic defendant. Um, and that's all the good things. That's basically what their case came down to. On the other side, the weaknesses in their case, or potential weaknesses, are that you have a victim, Mr. Floyd, who had drugs in his system, a significant amount of fentanyl and methamphetamine. And I listened to the testimony of the one doctor, um, I think she was a forensic toxicologist, either that or the pathologist, I think it was a toxicologist, and she said that at the levels separate and apart from the incident that occurred, at the levels of with methamphetamine and fentanyl in Mr. Floyd's system, she would pronounce this as a death from an overdose, a drug overdose. And both methamphetamine and fentanyl are specific to the user, meaning you develop tolerances and everything. But that's how she said, if I didn't see the video and I didn't know the other things, that's exactly how I would have said it. So that's a weakness in the case. Um, you also have Mr. Floyd, who may or may not have been doing something illegal immediately prior to this. The case, the allegation here was that he was using or passing a counterfeit uh, bill. And Obviously, that goes into a jury's consideration of things. Um, and Mr. Floyd had his own physical situation. Uh, they said that he had an, an enlarged heart, which obviously needs more oxygen and to, to produce its desired result. And that enlarged heart goes into, hey, did he potentially die from that? Uh, or did that limit the reasonableness of Mr. Chauvin's actions? So what a prosecution wants to do with Mr. Floyd at that point is to minimize his, quote, weaknesses or the weaknesses in the case by, like, humanizing him and say, look, this is who the guy was, and, yeah, he had his, his issues, but nonetheless, this case isn't about George Floyd. It's about the strength in my case. The things that we talked about, the other things, the, the witness testimony, the video. From a defense pr perspective, Steve, what are the good and the bad in Chauvin before you walk into that courtroom? So, um, again, so the, the, the good, the number one good is, like I said, history. History is on Chauvin's side going into the courtroom. Uh, jurors uh, historically have been reluctant to, um, you know, hold... Um, police officers accountable for actions when they're in the course of duty. They're giving them that deference. Um, and so he has history on his side. Um, you also have, in order for the prosecution to win, they have to prove basically two things. They have to prove that the the use of force was un, was unreasonable. So it's already understood that if you're required to use force and the, the force is reasonable and somebody ends up dying in the course of that, your actions are going to be deemed justified. So they got to overcome that. And then the causation, you have to establish that the action of Chauvin is what caused, or you know, at least in part caused the death of Floyd. So you got to, you got to get past both things. Um, so, you know, right from the beginning, we know that we're going to need, you know, as defense, we know we're going to need an expert 
to talk about use of force. And that's why you saw one of the seven witnesses that uh, the defense called was an expert um, and retired police officer. I note that he was from California because, you know, with these situations, a lot of times the you, you have to search and find. <laughs> and Dan, you've done this many times uh, for your cases where you need to find an expert uh, that it, you know, will give an opinion that's going to be favorable to your case. And so sometimes you have to search around to, to find the expert. And so here in this case, they found someone in California um, who uh, had the opinion that the use of force was reasonable. No one else in the case testified to that. But, um, you know, you got this one witness from defense hired basically what we call a hired gun to come in and, and, and give a favorable opinion going up against officers who were in the police department that Chauvin worked in, including the chief, saying that was not reasonable force. And that um, brings up a great point because what the prosecution did is they divided their case basically into three separate parts. It was, and this goes into the planning of a trial. You, you need to tell a story, and that story is... It's best told, in my opinion, chronologically, um, but there has to be something that the jury can to follow along with. You can't be all over the place. You can't be scatterbrained. Um, you really want to have it defined, okay, this is the first part of the case, this is the second part of the case, this is the last part of the case. And what they did is they divided it into three separate parts. They did the basically the witnesses to the incident, and obviously the film, the video, and then the family members. So at that point, they're saying, this is what happened. And they humanize Mr. Floyd at the same time. So you bring on the people that are standing there first, or the people, the first witnesses, the first series of witnesses are the people who were there. Tell us what happened. Show us what happened. Then they turn the page to the second part. The second part was the law enforcement and basically the policy people. And they are the police officers. They, are, they had their own use of force expert as well. And the most powerful one here was exactly like you said. You have the chief of police in that department, Mr. Chauvin's boss, who is ultimately responsible for everything that goes on in that department, saying, no, what he did was wrong. We don't teach that kind of stuff. I'm aware of the things that we teach, and no, we do not teach those kind of things. That was excessive. And boom, that is a huge hit when you have a top, the top cop saying, my guy did a bad thing here. Um, and the prosecution hammered that home in the closing, and they said, this is not a, this is not a prosecution of police. This is a prosecution of a bad police officer. And that was brilliant. That was a brilliant was. line. It was a dagger. It was. I love, let me see, if, I think I wrote it down. What he said is there's nothing worse for good police officers than a bad police officer because he brings everybody down and it lo loses faith in the entire police force when you have one bad guy and this type of thing happens. So that's the first two parts, and then they brought it home with the medical personnel. In other words, the, the doctors, the pathologists, they said, okay, everybody, here, look what happened, tell us what happened. Police officers, was this proper? And then how did this man die? That's how they divided up their entire case and before they even got into closing.
So from a defense perspective, he made the decision not to testify, right? He did. And just in general, I think you agree with me, if we can keep our client off the stand, and, and we would prefer that. Um, in this situation, I think that the jury would want to know why he had the look on his face that he did. Everybody's seen that look many times over this past year. And when he did not testify, I, I, at that point, I thought the case was over because I thought that the jury would want to know and want to hear from him. Why did you stay that long? If you didn't have any animosity, if you didn't have a depraved heart, why did you have that look on your face? And without Chauvin taking the stand to explain that, I thought the jury was going to be left with the most powerful piece of evidence probably in the history of trials, <laughs> which is the, the video. Look, I'm of the mindset, I, I actually disagree with part of that. I'm of the mindset that my client has to take the trial or take the stand because as much as people want to say, well, it's their burden to prove it, I don't have to say anything, which I say all the time in my opening, they want to hear from the client. They want to hear in 80% of the cases, tell us what was going on and what were you thinking, and this is a classic one. But with that video, there's no way he could have taken a stand. I, I think I absolutely agree with the decision there that you couldn't have put that guy on the stand, and that's maybe going to be second-guessed at this point, but. Uh, I just don't know how you explain your actions if you're Derek Chauvin at that point with the video rolling. Steve, look, we did it again. It's, there's <laughs> 30 seconds left in this whole thing, uh, and it seems like it goes by in about two minutes. But another job. Great job, my friend. I always enjoy too, talking man. all with you. Um, it's, it's enjoyable for me to hear people who know what they're talking about, and I think you know what you're talking about. So hopefully we did a nice job for everybody out there in the audience as well. As always, uh, these are the opinions of Steve and I, not of our law firm, Lamb Lane PC. This is the lawyer part of things coming out of me. Um, and these are made for only for enjoyment type stuff. There it goes. There's my alarm going off. Um, we're over time, that means. So anyway, thank you, everybody, for your attention. Um, and Steve, great job. See you next you too, time. Dan. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to the Lamb Macerlane Legal Show, heard every other Thursday at 1230 on WCHE 1520, the talk of Chester County.